The information in this podcast is not a substitute for help from a licensed mental health professional. Welcome back to episode 75 of the Practice of Being Seen podcast. The Popscast is a collection of weekly connectfulness conversations where we examine how to create deeply restorative ripples of transformation within ourselves and within the world around us. I'm your host, Rebecca Wong, relationship therapist and mentor to therapist changemakers. We all have ideals, opinions, and expectations of our governing leaders. Sadly, those ideals are often not met because we elect politicians. Today's show is about change, like real change, the kind of change that can happen when the voice of the people is truly heard by community leaders and when the needs of every segment of the community are addressed and improved. This conversation is a breath of fresh air. My guest genuinely has the heart and determination to make these changes into reality for the good of all the people. Brandy Brooks is an organizer and educator who has spent nearly 15 years working on social, environmental, and economic justice. Her areas of focus include community organizing and empowerment, community-based design, land use planning, food justice, and food sovereignty. She currently works as the leadership development organizer for Progressive Maryland, and Brandy has served on multiple nonprofit boards and planning committees, locally and nationally. She continues to speak at local and national events on community design, community-based food systems, and corporate development. Brandy's civic and professional leadership have been recognized through numerous awards and fellowships. We're taught that we are powerless to change the systems that govern us. But Brandy strives to help people reclaim their power and break down the false narratives that are used to divide, dehumanize, and control us. Her hope is to provide a people-powered democracy where the needs, hopes, and dreams of all are valued. In her words, I want us to live in our boldest visions for a renewed, healed, and liberated world where we can live in peace, love, and dignity. Brandy recently ran as a candidate for Montgomery County Council at Large in Maryland. Even though society tells her as a woman of color that she has a certain place, she says her life has a calling and she has a destiny to fulfill. Her goal is to do politics differently in a way that engages people in organizing to tell their stories and experiences and build the vision that they want in the world. Brandy's theme, relational politics, based on how we build trust, protect each other, understand the benefits and drawbacks and make choices. When things in our society are broken, it ultimately comes down to fundamentally broken relationships. Unfortunately, some groups want to maintain power over others and keep groups of people disconnected by design. You'll be inspired as I was by Brandy's account of the moment when she realized that she could not remain in the shadows any longer. She's open and transparent about her battle to maintain mental health in the face of depression. Brandy's an advocate for others who face mental health stigma and have been shamed and blamed. People need support in whatever their needs are, and they need to choose a space of freedom. 
Brandy's other passions include improving out-of-whack relationships with farming, food, education, and community healing. And she dreams of building a world that matches our values, a world where justice and love and dignity and care for one another are the bedrock of how we govern ourselves. Let me introduce you to Brandy. Welcome back to the Practice of Being Seen podcast. I'm here today with Brandy Brooks. Hi, Rebecca. I'm Brandy, and I live in Wheaton, Maryland. And as you mentioned, I'm running for Montgomery County Council at large. I am a first-time candidate. This is my first time running for elected office. And it's been tremendously exciting in terms of taking the organizing work that I've been doing for 15 years and bringing that into the political space, moving from working on environmental and social justice and economic justice advocacy and nonprofits to occupying the political space and really deciding to move into the spaces where power is held and where decisions are being made and to say actually all of us belong in those spaces. So I'm really excited to be able to talk about that more with you today. Oh, me too. You know, I think it's also interesting because for me, running for office is part of organizing. So I talk about this all the time on the campaign trail, that I'm running as an organizer, that I plan to govern as an organizer. So it's all organizing. And it's all about building community power. And I think it's a particular way of doing that. But I know that as I've had conversations with people about what this election is about and what it means in my life and what it means in the work that I want to do in the area, you know, regardless of the outcome of the election, it's not as if I stop organizing the day after the primary. I'll probably take a break and go to the beach, but the work continues. And the question is, what form is it going to continue on June 27th? Mm. So, you know, I think that's actually one of the interesting things about running for office for me. I'm not necessarily, how do I put this? I mean, so it's a complex because in some ways I am a person who's always seen myself in this public leadership role and has thought about running for office at many times in my life. But running for office wasn't the goal, if that makes sense. Like, like running for office wasn't an end in itself. What is the goal, Brandy? Yeah, so the goal is I've always had this huge vision of myself as like a change agent in world history. And that feels like a really odd thing to say. And it is something that honestly, only through this election do I feel like I'm fully living into and fully being willing to claim that. Because when you say that, and when you say to people, oh, you know, I think of myself in a mode similar to the Enlightenment philosophers, or I think of myself as a public leader, like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., that people look at you a little cross-eyed. You know, it's funny that you say that, though, because my reaction, I know you can't see me right now, our listeners can't see me, so I'm going to describe my reaction as you said that. Mm -hmm. I did that thing where you make a fist and you pull it in towards you and you bend your knee a little and you're like, yes! That's what I did as you said that. (laughs) See, See, that's so fantastic. And it's very, very affirming because I think throughout my life, and especially as a woman, you know, you're taught, and a woman of color. And a woman of color. You're taught to be 
you know, self-effacing. You're taught to be humble. You know, I'm a Christian woman of color as well. And so humility and not putting yourself too forward and not being prideful, you know, all these messages that you get about the role that you're supposed to play in the world. And yet all the time within myself, I've been like, but there's this vision. I feel like there's this vision that has descended upon me where I am supposed to do great things. Well, that sounds like a calling, doesn't it? It I mean, it's how much of this is ego and how much of this is calling. Right. And that's the thing is it wasn't about, oh, I think I should do this because, you know, I'm the big stuff. It was, there's a destiny on me. But how do you say that? when you're young or when you're just starting out in your career or when you're building yourself, you're like, there's a destiny upon me. Again, people look at you weird and they think the word that always came to my mind to describe it was megalomaniacal because it's like, that's what you think. But I've come to realize actually through running for office that different people are taught to think differently about this. So part of the story of how I came to run for office was me going to this training for trainers where I was going to be training other leaders in movement building politics. So how do we use uh, electoral work, not just to win elections, these short-term goals, but how do we use it to build sustainable movements through relational organizing and that are about doing politics differently, that are about people not having to run as this like spit-shined version of themselves, but running, telling your real story, because it's actually you being a real person with your real story and your real experiences that allows you to connect to other real human beings. And that actually engages them in the movement because then it gives them the freedom to share their stories and for you all to build out together your vision of the world and the things that you want to work toward and how you want to organize based on the truth about our lives, as opposed to based on the image that we all feel like we have to project about ourselves. Oh, oh wait, know. I'm going to pause you there because, <laughs> oh my God, I have full body chills going on right now as you're talking and I'm thinking, yes, the truth of our lives like this. Oh my God, this is so liberating. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so What was so beautiful when I went to this training, at that point, I'd been engaged in both being trained myself and then helping to train other people in relational organizing at Progressive Maryland, probably for about, I don't know, like somewhere between six and nine months at that point. And got a chance to go to this training. It was like, how do you take that relational organizing model into the electoral space? And again, it was just like, oh my goodness, if this is what politics could be, then politics is amazing. And of course I want to do that. It was like coming home and saying, oh, this is what I've always wanted politics and elections to be about, but I didn't think it was possible. So can we break this down a little bit for our listeners? Mm -hmm. Because I think, I know that a lot of people out there get really confused about what politics is. Yes. Oh, yes. I've recently heard some online conversations where people are talking about and just even breaking apart the word politics, you know, Mm -hmm. where some people say, well, politics is always about when you're coming at it from two different viewpoints and you want to change my mind so that I think what you think. No, that is what we've turned politics into. But that isn't what I think politics is at its essence. I agree with you. I want to hear your opinion here, though. Yeah. So politics, I mean, you know, this root word, polis, like it's about the people. It's about the city, the community of people. And politics is how we work out how we live in that community. Mm. 
we've turned it into this game, this numbers, this like form of debate, this winners and losers. But that's not what it's supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about we are human beings who have to share the same space and the same resources and we're all operating in the same time in our lives and we've got to figure out how to do that without killing off each other and without killing off the planet that we live on. We're talking about governing. We're talking about governing. It's the process of how we make decisions together. That's politics. And so I'm going back to something that you said before about creating sustainable movements through relational politics. You use the word relational politics. I'm a relationship therapist. Mm -hmm. So, of course, this is capturing me and sucking me in, right? Because (laughs) I'm thinking, well, you know, and I've been thinking this a long time, actually, and I haven't really had the right person to talk about it with. You might be that person. Um, The very stuff I teach couples when they come into my office Mm -hmm. about how to relate to each other and how to respect each other and how to negotiate their lives together. I think that's the stuff that we're missing or that maybe you're working to infuse into politics. Yes. And we're told that that sort of work only belongs in our private lives that it only belongs in our family relationships or in our romantic relationships or in our friendships. All of those are human relationships. They're human relationships that take on different purposes in our lives, where we have different areas of focus and different kinds of interactions with each other. But we have to do the same things. We have to communicate with each other. We have to negotiate how we're going to do this relationship together. We have to figure out how we build trust. We have to figure out how we set boundaries. We have to figure out how we understand, you know, benefits and drawbacks and make choices. It's how we protect each other, how we repair ruptures, how, exactly. how we take responsibility. Yes. For, yes. Absolutely. As a society, as a community. Right, right. And this is the thing, too, is it's not just intellectual. It's our whole human self. It's how we think. It's how we feel in our emotions. It's how we feel in our bodies. So that we're in all of what we do is just being in relationship with each other. And when we find that things aren't working, either in our individual relationships or in our society, it's because we have broken relationships. Yes. Like racism or sexism. These are fundamentally broken relationships. Yeah. Between people who come from different parts of the world and different, you know, geographic like backgrounds, ancestral backgrounds. They're fundamentally broken relationships between men and women and men and men and women and women. Yes. And, you know, it's, it's so interesting. Not binary, you know? Yeah. I love where you're going with this. When I sit down with a couple and they come in to see me and they say, we can't communicate. It's never about communication because when they're not broken, when they're connected, they can always communicate. It's mm-hmm. when they're disconnected that they don't know how to communicate. Exactly. And that's the work. That's the place. So what I'm hearing you say is this is so much akin to that. It's the same kind of situation. We are a disconnected people, and that is why we are having so much trouble understanding and relating with each other. Yeah, and when it comes to politics and when it comes to the wielding of societal power, I think one of the things that we have to understand, and this is something that we talk about in the organizing training that we do, is that at this point in our societies, we are disconnected by design. 
Like we are disconnected because it serves a certain group of people who want to maintain power over a much larger group of people to keep that group of people divided from one another in all sorts of ways. So going back to the question of like, what gets broken? We are taught all of these narratives about ourselves and other people, about how the world works, about our roles in it, that are designed to disconnect us from one another. And in many cases, to disconnect us from ourselves, from the reality, to, to tell us that the reality that we experience or that we know in our lives somehow isn't true and that we have to adopt a different reality that doesn't match what we see actually going on every day. And that disconnection is so that we can't come together and actually successfully do the work of setting our vision and deciding how we want to move forward together so that other people can impose their version of what our world and what our future and what our individual and collective destinies should be like. And so in order to do that, you have to break people. You have to make them think that their understanding of the world, if it doesn't match the dominant narrative, that it's crazy or that they just don't fit in or that there's something wrong with them. You have to make them think that they don't share common humanity with other people that those people aren't people or that they're lesser people or that they're just a different kind of person that has no relationship. You have to break people to hold power over them. Yes. Okay. I wanted to make sure that I was understanding that correct. How do you repair this, Brandy? Ooh, well, you repair it by naming what's been broken and how it's been broken. Yeah. Waking up. Exactly. You have to, because, you know, it's like, this is the water that we swim in. So, we don't realize most of the time that we operate using these scripts and narratives that are designed to do all of these things to exercise control over us. So we have to start becoming aware of the fact that that's true. We have to start becoming aware of how that operates in our lives. So going back to the story that I was telling about kind of how I came to run for office, I went to this training and as we were doing all this work and thinking about, oh, this is what politics could be like, one of the things that I realized is that the reason that I hadn't run for office yet is because I believed, one, that politics had to be a totally different thing that was like gross and shady to me, as opposed to this beautiful thing. And two, because I had absorbed a whole bunch of narratives that told me that I would never be a successful candidate, that my ideas were too radical, that because of my identity as a black woman, as a short black woman, as a short, heavier set black woman, as a short, heavier set black woman with natural hair, that there would be all these things that people would look at and say, no, she doesn't belong here. You know, I absorbed the idea that I didn't have the right kind of experience or I didn't know enough, despite being a highly educated, very well accomplished, widely experienced professional woman. You know, I've still absorbed all of those narratives. But then I realized that there are other people who don't get told that. And the two of them who came to mind for me are the current person occupying the White House <laughs> <laughs> and the governor of Maryland. Mm. And I thought, here are two people who basically wake up and say, I can be whatever the heck I decide I want to be. And I said to myself, now, wait a minute. Why can't I? Exactly. If they can wake up and say, 
I can be governor or I can be president. And they can have demonstrably, in some cases, less experience or less relevant experience than I do, or at the very least, experience that is no more relevant than the experience that I have. What on earth is keeping me from saying that I can do that? Was this a pivotal moment for you? It was a huge moment for me. It was enormous because that was when I realized that the only thing that was holding me back, it wasn't my knowledge, it wasn't my experience, it wasn't my ability, it wasn't whether or not I'd be a good candidate. It was because I had been taught that I shouldn't run because it benefits other people not to have people like me in positions of power. This is that disconnected by design. This is that disconnected by design. And then I said, well, forget that. I'm not doing that anymore. And Rebecca, almost immediately, within two weeks of that realization, I had announced on stage in front of 1,200 people that I was running for office in the 2018 elections. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. See, that's how quick it was. When we get... Oh, it's just getting out of your own freaking way. Yes. And when we wake up, we become aware of the range of options that we have closed off from ourselves, that we have told are closed off to us. It's like, wait a minute. I am not staying over here in this dark corner anymore. I'm going out into the world. And I did. You let the light shine on you. Yes. Instead of staying in the shadows where you were told to be. Exactly. And it was beautiful. It was beautiful for me. It was exciting for other people. You know, there have been so many amazing moments throughout this campaign. Okay. And it's funny. I actually made this decision in conversation with my therapist. So my (laughs) therapy has has played a really pivotal role. As I reflected on that, I was telling the story of this training and I realized that in my conversation with the therapist, it was the second time that I had said to myself, oh, you know, wait a minute, like, if these people can run, there's no reason that I can't run for office. And then I was like, that's the second time in two weeks that I said that. I think I need to run for office now. And she was like, I think we do. And I said, you know what, we're going to do that. I love and, it. But then when I announced that, and I started making that public, and I made that public to my family, one of the first things that happened is my sister texted me, and she said, can I be your campaign manager? Oh, my goodness. Right. This is not even like a, you know, no, you know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. This is like a, I'm fully, fully, fully in with you. Yes, I'm fully in. And I want to take the next craziest role after being the candidate (laughs) in this insane venture that you just decided to do. (laughs) And it's been amazing because I just have to pause and say, my sister is amazing. So she is a first time campaign manager but because she's a badass she does everything like a boss she's my campaign manager and my communications director because that's her background our print and digital materials are out of sight they're some of the best that you will see in this campaign they impress everybody in the county and the campaign that we have run i could not be doing this without her she's like my right and left hand person and she's just she's outstanding but again, it's like when she heard that I was doing this, like she got the call. And then all of these people, as they hear what we're doing and how we're doing politics, it's like everybody gets the call. And they're like, oh my gosh, this is what we're doing now? This is amazing. I think I've wanted to do this all my life, but I didn't realize I could. One of the things I hear so often from people who host house parties for us, who come out and volunteer for us, they say, I'd never really thought of myself as a person who would get involved in politics before. 
but I'm really excited to do it now. They're really excited to step up and take these leadership roles, to take risks, doing things that are uncomfortable for them, canvassing, or going out and talking to people as introverts, as shy folks, hosting events. Like People are excited to do this, to take risks, to walk out there and build out this vision because when you do things in this relational way, when you do things, when you follow your own call to greatness, then other people are like, oh, wait, we're going for greatness now? I'm all in on that. You know, I say this all the time. I say when you truly see yourself, you begin to create a ripple effect that not only allows you to be the change that mm-hmm. you want to see in the world, but it invites everyone around you to do the same. And I think what you're talking about right now is exactly that, that yeah. by being, by embodying this space within yourself, you're inspiring everybody around you that they can also take a step into this. Right. And that's the beauty of doing this relational organizing work because so often, and I've discovered this in small ways in my own life, even before I came into kind of formally being an organizer, that when we are honest and transparent in our lives, when we actually share our truth and our reality, it starts to give people permission to do the same. One of these kind of moments that I remember so well from a few years back. So I've wrestled since I was a child with chronic depression and I've gone through a lot of different stages and, you know, mental health is something that can often be really hard to talk about publicly. And there's so much shame around struggling with mental health conditions, as I know, you know, as a therapist, you know, and I'm on medication to help me manage my depression. And I'm like, you know, better living through chemistry because, you know, without, My antidepressants, you know, people have a lot of misconceptions about that, but they basically give me the ability to make a space between all the sort of reactions that go on in my brain and then the choices that I make in response to those reactions. And it's not about like not having emotions or like controlling me as a person. It's just giving me It's giving you the space. So I can choose. Like I still get sad. I still get really depressed sometimes, but I have the ability to choose what I want to do with that as opposed to spiraling out when I didn't have something that helped me to take a little bit more control. And I remember the the first time that I like acknowledged publicly on Facebook where I was like, thank the Lord for antidepressants because without them, like I would be a hot mess. And, you know, it was kind of this like first very public confession that one, I was depressed and that two, I took medication for it. And the responses that I got, it was person after person after person, like coming out of the closet about their depression. First of all, thank you for addressing mental health stigma. I'm grateful for bringing this to light and sharing your personal experience with us. And I think you have given one of the best, best descriptions that I have heard probably ever about what antidepressants have done for you. Mm. It reminds me of one of my very, very, very favorite quotes in the entire world by Viktor Frankl, mm-hmm. and where he says, between stimulus and response, there's a space. Mm. And in that space lies our power and our freedom to choose our response. Yes. yes. And what you're talking about here is that by taking the antidepressants, by choosing to do that, you're choosing to give yourself more of that space yes. to choose your response, to Absolutely. choose your freedom. Yeah. And, you know, when 
again, people do this in different ways and it can take a while sometimes to figure out is medication the right thing for you? Like, are there different tools? There's lots of different tools, but this is a tool. But this is a tool and it's about, it's about doing that because I think one of the things people don't realize about struggling with mental health is that, you know, in the same way that, you know, if you're having heart pain or if your arm is broken, like you're not choosing to feel pain and you're not choosing to like go, ow, and like there's a thing that's happening and it's, and you feel really overwhelming if it's really bad and you don't tell someone whose arm is broken, like fuck up little camper. You just need to feel more positive about stuff. But we tell people that who are dealing with mental health issues, like, you know, just like mind over matter it, as opposed to saying, oh, hey, wait, this is something where someone needs help to be able to respond in the way that is best for them. And we really have to start viewing mental health much, much differently and stop so much of the shaming and blaming and recognize that it's a thing that without support, you know, we don't have a lot of control over any more than someone has like a lot of control over how to reset their arm. I mean, I think this plays into probably a lot of your platform, right? This piece about how we support people and how we create opportunities for them to succeed. Yes, hugely. I mean, this is our, you know, my platform is Montgomery for All. And it's really about what are the systems and the structures and the processes that we need to build so that that's actually a reality, so that all people in Montgomery County are able to live sufficiently, live in safe housing, get an education and develop their skills and their talents in the way that is right for them, do work that has dignity and where they are fairly rewarded for the contributions that they make to their workplaces and to our economy. Make sure that you have food on the table. You know, all of these different pieces. Make sure that you can live in peace and safety and freedom from violence. You know, all of these different pieces. And make sure that you are fully engaged and informed and empowered to participate in our politics, in this process of how we make decisions together, and that we're actually making decisions together, not just electing some small group of people, again, to exercise power over. It's about power with. It's about our power. And I talk about this all the time on the campaign, that I'm not running so that I can sit in a nice office somewhere. I'm running because there's a million people in Montgomery County that I want to bring with me into the decision-making spaces. So this brings me to, oh God, my brain is spinning right now. I'm going to try to slow down and create that (laughs) space. But okay, Brandy, where I'm going with this is first I want to know, how do you get to a place where you even develop a platform? Like what helped you get there? And then this is a platform that isn't just you. It's a platform where you want to bring all these people. It's an us. It's an our. So talk to me also about the influences that you take in along the way of delivering your message. So many, so many. I know. I told you my brain was spinning. You can slow that down and take any piece of it that you want to start with. So one thing that I want to name, and partly it's, it's affirming myself, but it's also affirming other folks who may have a hard time affirming this. Part of how I develop my platform is because I am a highly experienced and skilled professional who's been doing organizing work, environmental and social justice work, community design and land use planning work, food systems work for 15 years. So a big part of the platform is doing all of that work and seeing that 
there are ways of doing things that people are using more successfully to help other folks thrive in their communities. And then looking around the county that I live in and being a resident of this county and saying, okay, here are the things that I see going on. Here are the things that I experience in my life, in my family's life. Here are the things that friends and colleagues experience. Here are the things that I see going on in the news, going on in the community. And then saying, okay, based on all of that information that I have about what I've studied, about what I've done in the workplace, about what I've lived, that is how I develop my understanding of what I believe needs to happen to build a better polis. So one thing I want to name for folks who are highly skilled, who have a hard time saying, I'm a highly skilled, intelligent person, very capable, able to do these things. Say it. Say it more often. Say it to yourself. Let other people say it to you. Because again, we live in this system that's designed to make a lot of us feel like what we know and what we can do and what we've experienced doesn't matter and doesn't count. But it does. Even if you're not experienced in the ways that we traditionally credential in our society, don't discount the value of your lived experience for knowing what are the things that need to happen in the world to make it better. One of the simple examples that I use all the time is talking about transportation planning. So when we plan out public transit systems, we tend to bring in transit planners and transportation engineers. And those are good folks, and they've got great skills in a particular body of knowledge. They're needed in that process. But if you want to understand how a transit system works, you should also bring in the single parent with a couple of kids who has to take her or his children on the bus and the train around to run errands and get groceries and go to the doctor because they also know a lot about how a transit system needs to work and their experience and their knowledge is frequently left out of the process, meaning we don't get a transit system that works as well as it should for the people who need to use it. And then you see declining ridership and declining revenues on transit because people aren't able to use it in the ways that they need because their experience and their knowledge was never factored in because it was considered unimportant. What you're talking about sounds like essentially calling in a focus group of your population. A focus group, but again, even more ongoing than that, because I want us to think about this process of community decision making, not as a one time process. Community decision making. Exactly. This community. is community yeah. decision making. This is the ongoing process of how we govern ourselves. So we continue to figure out transportation for different parts of the county, for different specific areas, for new projects that come along. So the community decision-making and engagement and making sure that we're seeking out a wide variety of people and their diverse experiences and voices and making sure that we're making it possible for those people to participate, that needs to be ongoing. Like the function of government is to facilitate self-governance. Oh, all right, Brandy, go deeper here, please <laughs> go deeper here, because I want to hear more about this vision this calling of yours, I'm hearing this piece about the function of government is to promote self-governance. It's to create that forum for that. And I'm wondering if that's where this really leads to, but in your personal spiritual, I'm going to even call it opinion, what do you think we could be at our best? Oh, gracious. Oh, wow. 
<laughs> that's the dream. That's the vision. And that's yeah, actually go, what, go there. It, it's what gets me up in the morning and keeps me up working all throughout the day. I mean, I have these visions and I get glimpses of it, of this liberated world. And I'll talk about really personally what it means for me. It means that I get to spend my day building my relationships, uh, caring for myself, like feeding myself, clothing myself, keeping my space neat. Like, and then that I get to do meaningful work that's supporting others. For me, a lot of that would have to do with teaching and training, would be like developing philosophies and organizations, and that there are other people who are engaged in their part of the work, and that we're all, it's that we get to focus time on the essentials of being human. Like, if you think about it, most of us spend most of our day not doing the basic things that we need to keep ourselves alive and to mm-hmm. keep ourselves like in relationship with other people. And we sort of like outsource that or think we can outsource that to other folks. And so again, we continue to disconnect ourselves from like the really basic from our own lives, from our own lives, from our own closest necessities. And we spend all of our day basically making money for other people as opposed to doing the basics of human living. So I'm wondering if I'm understanding, if I'm grasping this right. In your vision, government becomes a holding space so that we can get back to that work of human living. Yes. I mean, you know, there is this concept in ancient philosophers, like, you know, and it kind of runs through philosophy, like, what is the good life? You know, what is the life that we are all trying to live? And when you ask people, like, what are the essential, like, the really meaningful things that they want? You know, what are the things that people think about, you know, when they die? They're not thinking about their bank balance. (laughs) (laughs) They're not thinking about the reports that they wrote. They're thinking about the time they got to spend doing the most meaningful stuff, which, as we talked about earlier, is about all of those relationships, that we engage in, you know, when we talk about how people are remembered at the end of their lives, you know, there are all these sort of sayings and phrases that are like, you know, it's about like what people remember, what they'll say about you at your funeral, or what they'll write on your epitaph. It's like, it's what you've left after all of your relationships. And the regrets that you hear are people not having spent time on those things and feeling like they didn't leave as much as they wanted in some area or another of their relationships with other human beings in their lives and the wider world. And so, you know, it's about, and it's hard to envision sometimes the practicalities of this because none of us have lived in what this looks like. This is always the thing that we're aspiring toward and trying to build out the pieces of it. I want to live in your vision. I want to know more about it because I mean, that sounds like a world I can totally, totally be in fully be in. Yeah. So my big, big dream uh, beyond running for office, like the goal of all my organizing is that I want to ultimately found this model sustainable community or series of sustainable communities that are built around, you know, sustainable agriculture and other forms of community self-production that are modeling like radical democracy and radical economic sharing, you know, radical self-governance that are places that are, ecumenical in terms of bringing together people of different faiths because I want spiritual practice to be part of these communities. And again, where we spend our time as a community focusing on the core things that we need 
to be human, which is, you know, providing for ourselves, learning how we stay in relationship with each other, negotiate conflicts, share our joys, all of that stuff, how we raise our children and one another, honestly, because we're always kind of raising each other. And like, it's how we do that. And I want to build communities that can sustain themselves so that people can focus on that. And meaningful work is a part of it. I think people have all these conceptions about like utopian communities and hippie communes and everyone sitting around, I don't know, smoking weed or wandering around with flowers in their hair. Maintaining human life, like it takes a lot of work. (laughs) So, you know, you're not, you're not just lazing around. And I heard that one of the big things that's part of this is meaningful work. Yeah. Yeah, work where you understand what you're working toward. Like, think about this again. In the economy that we have, how many of us feel like we deeply understand the value of what we do for ourselves or the world? How many jobs are actually like that? And the answer is a small fraction of them. Such a small fraction. Most people go because they need to make money to pay the bills, The level of investment in your workplace, your job can vary widely. The level of sense of ownership that you have or autonomy, you know, these are all these things that like organizational development leaders talk about needing to develop in your employees and, you know, craft jobs that feel meaningful and have opportunities for advancement and such and such. But part of the reason like we need to craft this stuff is because so much of the work that we do does not feel fundamentally meaningful. Yeah. And it feels like it actually takes time away from the things that are most important to us. And then we lose focus because we get so caught. Yes, it takes time away. We get caught up in the things that we have to quote unquote do that we don't get to be with the people that we want to be with. Right. You know, or do the things that are our passions, do the things that like give us joy, that put us in that place where just our whole person sings. I mean, again, how often is that a description of anybody's job? How can government help to get us there? Okay, so we have to, and again, you know, people ask, well, you know, give me the answer now. I don't have the answer now. I'm one brain. We need many more brains all collectively working on this, which is part of what I'm trying to facilitate. But we need to make, part of, I think, government is to, you know, like provide for the common welfare. Make sure that people have the basic things that we need Um, And that we're distributing and allocating resources so that people can, you know, be sheltered, be fed, be safe, and then, you know, figure out their means of exchanging stuff with each other, which, again, our understanding of, like, human exchange, we've made it into, like, the formal monetary market, but it's so much more than that. And these are your platforms. I mean, I'm looking at your website right now and and the issues that you highlight are housing for all, economy for all, food for all, transportation for all, democracy for all. Like this is the basic part of what you're building your platform on. Exactly. And it's how do we, in the system that we have now, start to move this closer to making sure that, again, when people work, that they are getting paid decently for that work and paid in such a way that it's a living wage that can actually sustain their families without having to work, you know, two or three jobs and not, you know, see their children or not see their spouse or not be able to take sick time or not be able to care for a sick family member. So how do we make sure that there, you know, that that we have living wages? How do we make sure that we have earned sick time and sick leave? How do we make sure that we have good worker protection so people are safe on the job? How do we 
you know, engage in like commerce and business in ways that support people in our communities being able to do the things that they feel called to do. And that we have, you know, as we're directing like our economic development resources, that we're not again directing them to like wealthy corporate entities outside of our communities, but that we're reinvesting them in the people in our communities and in the places in our communities and in the people who want to do things that are exciting and visionary that will make our communities better. Like that's what our economic development should be. When it comes to transportation, it's interesting. One of the things I've been talking about recently is that so much of our transportation in Montgomery County is oriented toward getting us from Montgomery County into DC. But you know, what's really hard getting from one part of Montgomery County to the other to see each other. So, and it's interesting when I talk to people about that, when I say like, we're not trying to get from Montgomery County to another place. We want to get around Montgomery County. People are like, yes, that is exactly what I would like to be able to do. It resonates because there's this understanding that right now our transportation system is not oriented toward what we really need and that it starts to magnify divides that we have like down county, up county divides, east county, west county divides because our transportation system is not oriented to connect people across different parts of the county. I'm having a big, huge moment of just recognizing maybe for my first time as you're talking, how important transportation is in regards to connecting people. Absolutely. I mean, it's the bones of our network of getting people and stuff back and forth. So wherever those go, that's where people and stuff go. But we're always, I mean, you know, I can tell you, running at large for county council, trying to get back and forth across the county is hard. There aren't very good direct routes, or it takes a really long time, or it's jam-packed in traffic, because we haven't focused on how to actually get each other around efficiently. And again, people feel that they experience that in their daily lives and like the time spent in traffic or the time spent on train and bus trying to get to where they need to go. And it's just, it's an almost universal frustration Mm -hmm. across the county because our transportation system isn't oriented Towards, to serve us toward what we most need. No, so it's, it's oriented towards keeping the people in power in power. Right. And so it all kind of goes to this center of power and says, that's what's important. And then right. it says, okay, now we send you back out and then we send you back in. And so, you know, that's what I talk about with transportation. When we talk about food, again, oh my goodness, our food system It seems like it's so basic, but we've distorted our food system, you know, nationally and globally so much. Our food system should first and foremost be about making sure people are fed. That is not what our food system does first and foremost. Our food system first and foremost generates profit for a very small number of agribusiness. And almost everyone else in that system is getting screwed. Farmers are getting screwed. Farm workers are getting screwed. Consumers are getting screwed. The land is getting screwed. Like food service workers are getting screwed. We're, like we're not healthy. We're, we are worried about like what's in our food. We don't know where it comes from. Very few people who are part of the system are actually well served by the system. And we also see that what we do here with the U.S. food system in other countries is destroying the agricultural economy of other countries. And even as we export things like the, you know, the green revolution to Africa, so much about of that was about corporate control of seeds and the inputs for farming. It wasn't about empowering local farmers to be able to feed their own people 
the most effectively, to respect their own food traditions, to maintain biodiversity and food practices that had helped sustain them through centuries, millennia in some cases, of changing environmental and economic and political conditions. And, you know, like we need to return our food system back to its basic function. Like right now, I mean, our food system leaves millions of people and tens of thousands of people in our county hungry. I mean, again, so many people working in dangerous conditions for low wages without protections. It's stripping all the nutrients out of our land. It's depleting our biodiversity continuously. And we're not getting healthier. And we're getting sicker. Like so many of the diseases that are hitting Americans are chronic diseases that have direct tie-ins to diet. Yeah. And it's becoming more and more of an issue for all, all of us. Everybody, everybody's food system has changed this way. And again, now we're exporting this to other countries. And so we have got to stop and say, wait, so in Montgomery County, we have this opportunity where we've got this beautifully preserved agricultural reserve combined with very dense urban markets for food, as well as places where you can grow and start up food businesses within a single jurisdiction could create an amazing, thriving local food economy that's helping to protect and sustain our environment, that's providing economic opportunity for a whole bunch of people, that's getting healthy food to folks who need it, that's celebrating and maintaining our cultural diversity and all of the other practices around food. Because here's the thing too, food isn't just nutrients that we put in our bodies. Food is culture. Food is religion. Food is relationships. Mm-hmm. And again, we've stripped food of all these things so that it can be commodified. But all of those things are important. Like even the way we eat now, and I am so guilty of this. You know, we eat on the go. We eat fast food. We eat convenience food. How often do we actually sit down and share meals together? A slow meal, a meal that we tend to and we nurture and we feed each other and that culture is involved in that st- We have stories and memories about our food. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, I see this so much, you know, in the course of my campaigning, I've had the opportunity to go to services at synagogues, services at mosques, and again, to see how food is an integral part mm-hmm. of like faith rituals. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many things that we lose when we commodify our food in this way. Yes. And it's just, you know, so, so all of this, all of these things that I talk about on my platform, it's about bringing us back to what matters the most and making sure that the policies that we have in our government, that the systems that we have are enabling people to do that, are enabling people to spend time with their kids, to spend time investing in kids, like changing our educational system. So again, it's not about test taking, And it's not about like meeting all of these numbers, but it's about teachers being able to teach young people and be able to invest in their learning and development and understand who those young people are and support them in their growth. Teachers literally don't have time for that. And they're so frustrated. So frustrated. And it takes them away from the reason they do their work. Yes. And, you know, I'm not even going to get into the politics of the recent conversations around the types of things that we're asking teachers to do these days that aren't teaching. I'll stay away from issues on gun control and safety and all of that, sort of. I did mention it because I can't help myself. No, but but, um, but because it needs to be mentioned. It needs to be mentioned. All of a sudden, we've just totally abandoned all What teaching is. They're not teaching anymore. 
right? They're not teaching. They're supposed to be running all of these tests so that some bunch of people can get a bunch of metrics where they can pat themselves on the back for achievement, whether or not our young people are actually prepared to face the real challenges of the world ahead of them that we are leaving to them. And around Um, the country, in many, many communities, kids don't feel safe going to school. They don't feel safe going to school. And how do you learn when you don't feel safe? Right. They don't feel safe. Again, kids are going to school hungry. Kids are going to school homeless. Kids are going to school with incredibly challenging, you know, social and economic environments. And again, not just kids of low incomes, but there's a lot of stuff that goes on in families of all incomes. There are so so much. I mean, again, you're a therapist. You know this. Well, I know it and I have blind spots. So, you know, I'm fully aware of that. I know that I have... um, someone who's really dear to me who's in my life and she's a school teacher and she was working in a, a low income community for a while and they were feeding the children that came to their school, their public school, two meals a day until mm-hmm. that got cut mm-hmm. and especially leading into summertime and kids not being in school. These kids don't necessarily eat if they don't go to school. Exactly. Yeah. And then we're trying to figure out how to make up for the fact that we don't have an economy that like provides people a good enough living to feed themselves and their children. We're trying to figure out how to make up for that through the school system, as opposed to just doing what is right and making sure that people share equitably in the economic benefits that they produce. I, like, again, this is out of whack relationships in our it's economy. out of whack relationship. Yeah. It, because it's, it's this piece about holding power. Mm-hmm. And it, it keeps coming back to that. It does. Yeah. Gosh, there's like a million places I could go with <laughs> you right now. I'm trying to think of kind of, we're talking about how this holding power really breaks people and it disconnects them. Mm-hmm. One of my huge, big interests is putting people back together. It's helping them come back to and remember themselves mm. and I do this on an individual or small group kind of level. You're talking about doing this in large scale communities. Yeah. And I want to say that, I mean, again, part of the reason why we talk about relational organizing is that even in larger groups, it's still person to person. And I think, again, sometimes we forget that, like in this era of mass everything, we think that we can do like mass relationships. Well, this is like me too. Yeah. I mean, this feels like a huge relational organizing thing from my perspective, the whole Me Too movement. How many people have turned to each other and said, this is my story, and someone else said, oh, well, this is my story, and so on and so on and so on. Right, and what was the power in a whole bunch of people realizing, wait a minute, how many of us have this story? And, you know, I'll... I'll That's the wake up. Yeah, and I'll tell you a really interesting thing about my... Whew, about my Me Too experience, which was when this happened, I was watching many, 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 almost all of the women on my Facebook timeline post about this. And my initial reaction was, you know, this is really interesting because I see so many of my friends and relatives posting about this, but it doesn't feel really related to me because I don't think I've ever had this experience. Like I see that a lot of other people have, but it's kind of surprising to me that I haven't. And then I remembered that I had basically punted from my memory or self-concept, the fact that I had been date raped. Mm. Isn't it so interesting? We all do that. 
Like I literally just took that out. Like I was just like, that didn't happen because it has taken me and again, until this me too, to actually name that that's what that was. Right. Because I said to myself, well, he didn't really mean it. It was like, he was a nice guy. He wasn't like trying to rape me and you know, my body ultimately responded. So I guess I must have said yes, even though I was vocally saying no, insistently the whole time. But I guess maybe I must have wanted it or must have been telling him that I wanted it. So I just decided that that wasn't really a violation, even though that's absolutely what it was, because I didn't know how to name that as a violation. And so I literally thought that it had never happened to me. Right. Because it's easier to think that it never happened than to make sense of how it happened. Right. And so then, and then it was like, oh, wait, shoot. Again, like shame. Like, I'm a sexual assault victim. Well, I don't want to be a sexual assault victim. And then, but, but just like all these things that kind of come on psychologically when you have to come to terms with these things that have happened to you. But without that, like literally, I would have continued not acknowledging this thing that has happened to me that has shaped how I feel about dating and relationships and men and sexuality. Yeah. And just like kept burying it and not paying any attention to like what happened to me or the impact that it had. And when we pay attention to what happens and the impact that it has, especially in large groups, like through the Me Too movement, mm-hmm. we create momentum. Yes. Momentum for individual but community healing. Right, exactly, exactly. And that, like, there are so many, this is part of why I run too, because there are so many just unacknowledged traumas and crises that are happening to people every day that don't get counted because they're always happening or because they're happening over a slower timeline or because honestly we just don't, we have decided as a society not to care about those people. But these crises are happening every day, like crises of people getting evicted, crises of people going bankrupt from healthcare costs, like crises of people getting deported and children and parents being separated through this just terrible racist immigration system that we have. Like these are crises that are happening every single day to so many people. They're coming so hard and fast that sometimes it's like before you've even finished with the first one, there's another one happening. And that's often like, you know, the accumulation of like structural oppression is that you're usually getting hit by like not just one thing and figuring out how to process that. You're getting hit by four or five things. That's Uh, part of the breaking, though. That's part of the the, the more things you get hit by, the less you know where to put your attention and what wounds to tend to. Exactly. Yeah. And then you're left with this profound sense of just utter powerlessness. And powerlessness is so devastating. It devastates us and our communities. When people believe that they have no control over what happens to them, that they have no ability to shape their lives or their relationships or their circumstances, I mean, you fall into despair. And we have individuals and whole communities that are in despair and people in despair, like they act that out in all sorts of dysfunctional ways. And again, we wonder why there's dysfunction in certain communities. There's been a whole series of conversations about like, 
again, the school shooters who are overwhelmingly white mm-hmm. men. And how, like, we have all these conversations about their mental health. But when it comes to the ways that black and brown boys respond much less violently to the daily traumas inflicted on them, we demonize them as bad kids, as predators, as criminals. It's so sad. It's so sad. But that is just people getting hit with trauma after trauma after trauma after trauma. And we don't talk about the physical as well as the mental health impacts of racism, sexism, xenophobia, transphobia, homophobia. Like, we don't talk about how that accumulates in our minds and our bodies. Yeah. We need to. We need to because we have so much healing that we have to do. You know, um, someone who I, who I follow a little bit on Facebook posted recently about watching, I don't know if it was their children or somebody else's children, young boys acting out, well, not acting out, but playing a game of, you know, bang, bang, please don't shoot me. I, I'm, I have my hands up, officer. It was very much a game of I'm, I'm practicing so that I can be safe if I'm ever pulled over somewhere. And as I read the story, my internal space went, oh, this, first of all, I'm horrified that these boys have to play this game and how amazing that they're playing this game and figuring out how to navigate the world. Both at the same time, you know, yeah. that, that I want these boys to be safe. So yeah, figure this stuff out, have these conversations, play this stuff out. And how is it that we have certain communities, black and brown communities, where children have to grow up in this way and other communities that are so ignorant of it that don't have any sense that this is a conversation that children are growing up in our country, in our communities, having to face every day? Because again, if you divide us and if you tell us that other people experiencing these things aren't really human like you, that's how you do it. How do we break that? How do we break that? Like, how do we find power? How do we leverage ourselves and bring awareness to that and break that system? That's what I, I want to learn how to do. So it's one of the reasons why I'm an organizing trainer yeah. and you know why I use the particular methodologies that we use because you know I've experienced in myself the power of naming and then making intentional decisions to counteract these narratives of saying like, this is what's going on. This is the script that I am acting out here or that I have been taught to act out in these different places. And so here is a choice, like a real actual like commitment that I will make to do something differently that helps me say, I'm not going to take on this narrative anymore. I'm going to set my own narrative that is true to myself. It requires us too, and this can actually be really hard. And I think both for people who experience privilege and people who don't, like being able to acknowledge the ways that we've been traumatized, because part of, you know, sort of there are two different sides of this corn. Part of the way that we survive in this world of brokenness is by like finding a whole bunch of ways to ignore that it happens, finding a whole bunch of ways to say, okay, this really isn't a trauma. It's just kind of a, you know, thing that sucks sometimes. Or finding a whole bunch of ways to say that's not really happening or what people say happening isn't as bad as it is. Because you have to maintain, like, honestly, living as an American where we say that our values are like democracy and liberty and justice is a perpetual act of cognitive dissonance. Thank you for saying so. (laughs) Like, you just have to decide to not pay attention to a whole bunch of things in order to try and figure out how to be an American. And what people are wrestling with right now 
is to try and figure out, okay, I am here, I am an American, but I can't be an American pretending to ignore reality anymore. So I've got to do the hard work of like facing reality and figuring out how I change reality uh, since if it doesn't match my values. And that's like, that's not easy work when you kind of have to come to terms with like the fact that everything, you know, after Mike Brown was murdered in Ferguson, yes, I had this like mini mental breakdown because I had to come to terms with like the fact that being black in America meant that all this stuff that I had been taught about what America was was fundamentally untrue for a lot of people who look like me. And then I was like, well, how do I even live here if there's all this stuff that I got taught that's basically a lot? And so then I had to go through this really hard work of like uprooting my life, moving from where I was, leaving my job, coming down to be closer with my family so I could be in a situation where I could figure out, okay, how do I do this? And how do you sustain doing this? And how do I sustain doing this? One of the reasons why I moved back to be closer to my family was because, like, I need to be in the relationships that hold me the most because I'm about to embark on this really hard, crazy work of trying to face up to the reality of the society in which I live. And, like, I don't know how my brain's going to keep together some days. So I need to be around people who I know love me and who I know know me and who I know like are not going to cast me out if I have to go through all the processes that I have to go through to try and figure out who I need to be. So one of the things I hear you talking about, Brandy, is trust. And that if you're going to trust yourself to go out there and create a platform and use your voice and be seen in bigger and bigger and bigger ways, Mm -hmm. that you also have to trust yourself to pick who are your people. Yes, and it cannot be done. You can't lone wolf this. You just can't. People try, and they're not effective. Like, people try, they burn themselves out, and and they don't accomplish the change that we need. And it's something that I've had to continually learn and, like, tell myself to repractice and settle into. Because, again, I've been taught all this stuff and through experience, as well as, like, the narratives in the world, about whether or not I can really trust people whether or not people will really invest in me. And I have had to learn to release a lot of that consciously, like time and time again to say, no, I'm not taking this all on by myself. I need a team. I need to be able to talk to people honestly about how this feels on a daily basis. I have to build a community of people around me. Like I'm running for at large in a county that's 500 square miles and over a million people in a race that typically costs $200,000, none of that is possible by myself. Right. And so I had to develop the practice of building community, and it's still hard some days. It's gotten better. Like, I love this experience of running because, again, it has helped me develop more into, like, the leader, but also the person that I know I need to be in the world to recognize practices that I have that are not healthy that do not help move me and the the calling that I have forward and to begin to change them. And again, it's ongoing work, but it's like without the people on my campaign team, without the hundreds and hundreds of people who supported us financially, who have volunteered, who've prayed for me, who like, like all these, who sent encouraging words, like without all of that, none of this happened. None of it. I'm really curious if you could also talk to us a little bit just about your, I know you're pulling people in around you 
but what do you do within yourself to keep yourself going? Oh, self-care is the thing we're worst at as organizers. (laughs) So (laughs) most of us are pretty bad at it. Most people I know in social justice work are terrible about this. Again, because we actually get taught that caring for ourselves is selfish as opposed to part of being functional. So, and yet if you don't, if you don't refill yourself, yeah, yeah, you break down and then you can't do the work. So it's like we get taught all this twisted stuff that we have to unlearn. Sleep is very important to me. I don't get enough of it, but I'm trying to get better about protecting the sleep that I have. One of my like self-care practices is being like actually just being transparent about my feelings with my team. And trying to like name feelings and have other people name their feelings. So there's this evaluation that we do at the end of our staff meetings where we ask people to share a feeling word. We ask them to share tensions that they're having and, you know, kind of we have this political lesson. And one of the reasons we do a feeling word is, again, we spend so much time intellectualizing our lives that we like don't pay attention to what our heart and gut are telling us about how we're responding to the the things that are happening to us. And so it's, it's like this practice of just like reaching out and saying, how do you feel right now? It might be tired. It might be energized. It might be angry. It might be disappointed. It, you know, it could be like all these different things. But to connect with that, so again, we're reconnecting ourselves and reaching into the place where we're sort of taught not to pay attention to because it doesn't belong in business or doesn't belong in the workplace. You know, and that allows me to name when I'm anxious about aspects of how the campaign is going or when I'm feeling really inspired by an experience I had, when I'm frustrated because we're trying to work out a problem that isn't getting worked out right. And like, I need to do that because running for office, the thing that no one tells you is that this is like, it's a daily emotional roller coaster. Like nobody tells you that the hardest part of running for office is actually managing and caring for yourself. Is like managing the, the fear and the doubt and like the emotional cost of constantly putting yourself out there for other people to judge, you know, is managing like how you take feedback, both positive and negative, and you kind of keep it balanced. How do you stay focused on like the plan and the the vision for how you want to run your campaign and not get distracted by everyone else's opinion of how you should run your campaign? Like, how do you manage? And it's not speaking in the general you, like for, yeah. so this is you. How do you do that, Brandy? How do you manage that space, the emotional cost of putting yourself out there? Prayer, talking to people I trust, mm-hmm. trying to get good sleep, trying to eat decent food at least some of the time. Again, like really basic stuff. You know, I, I pray a lot. I pray for help. I pray for Thanksgiving. But I pray to recenter myself and say, okay, wait a minute. This is what I'm called to do. Yeah. And like multiple points in the campaign, it has to be like, this is what I'm called to do. Or saying like, this is all looking crazy, but I have to trust that I received this call and that I'm supposed to keep walking this path, even though conventionalism is telling me that all of these things that I'm doing are like too wacky or won't be successful. Like I have to stay focused because I am trying to do something distinctly different that everybody's going to think is weird until it is successful. And then everybody's going to be like, oh, isn't that amazing? Look how successful this is. But for right now, they're going to be like, she's kind of crazy. And I don't know if she's going to make it. So this Um, is about believing in yourself. Yes. 
It's about believing in yourself, believing in your worth, believing in your message, yes. believing, believing in what you're here for, your life's work, your meaning. Yep. And, and staying constant. focused in that, staying centered in that, yeah. especially when you get pulled away. Yeah, constantly reminding myself, constantly having other people remind me, constantly having the responsibility of reminding other people, which helps me remind myself. Like, mm-hmm. so. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like that. But all of these pieces, the community that you've built around you, the sleep that you take, the prayer that you give yourself, all mm-hmm. of these different pieces are ways of reinforcing that belief. Yeah. And actually, my therapist has played a very big role <laughs> in my campaign in the background. She's one um, of your people. She's, because she's one of my people. When I started running for office, she was like, because we had been talking at that time about, you know, like maybe I'm at a point where I can kind of take a break from therapy, like don't need it. And then I decided to run for office. She's like, yeah, so you're going to be here for the next year. And I was like, oh, yes. Oh, yes. (laughs) And that has been a critical space. And like keeping that commitment to myself to say, hey, my mental health care is really important. And again, it's, it's actually not always about the campaign. It's a lot about like just stuff in my personal life, but that I have to say I'm important enough to take that time. I have to say I'm important enough to have meetings like my regular monthly meetings with my mentor and not punt those because I get busy. I mentor a lot of therapists and Mm -hmm. so much of the mentorship, actually I call the work I do, I call it integration work because I find that our lives, our livelihoods, our relationships, the work we're put out to do in the world, the places we want to be seen, practice being seen more, Mm -hmm. all of this stuff connects back to how we hold ourselves. Yeah. And it's interesting. Integrity has been this word that's been like really important in the back of my mind for a long time. Talk more about that. Yeah. This idea, not just like truthfulness or trustworthiness, Mm. but like this idea of wholeness, of like holding the pieces of your lives together so that they operate as one and not as all these pieces that are like flying about. And that doesn't mean that you don't have different spheres of your life, but that I want to be able to be me in all of those spheres. And so like, for me, integrity in my life means like being truthful and my full self and all the different spheres that I operate in and bringing my life into alignment with the values that I hold and with the kind of world that I want to build and the way that I want to be in that world. And so it's interesting that you talk about that like integration because that's a really like core principle for just how I'm trying to progress and mature in my life is to constantly be seeking more and more of that integrity. Mm. Yes. Because this, these are the places where we have been broken, the places where we have disconnected from parts Mm -hmm. of ourselves and pull it all back into wholeness, into oneness. Exactly. And I, I actually, as, as I was listening to you, I heard you say, you were talking about wholeness and then you were talking about holding. I, I just kind of got caught up in the, the dance between those two words, the wholeness mm-hmm. and the holding of, of the whole self. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Brandy, this has been an amazing conversation. I think I could probably keep going with you for another six hours <laughs> and love every minute of it. But I know you have big things to do. You have a, as we're recording this today, you have a primary coming up on June 26th. I do. So 20 days away, less than three weeks is primary day. Early voting actually starts in just eight days. So we are in like the final, final stress. And it's, it's amazing. I mean, this is something that I've been working on now for over a year. And it is 
I mean, of course, you know, it's only three weeks away, less than three weeks away. There's a certain terror to that where it's like, oh my God, there's all this stuff that we have to do between now and 20 days from now. And there's also a certain trust. There's a certain sure. trust. There's a certain trust. It's like, we're here at this point, you know, we're doing what we're doing. Some of my sister and I, we, we joke and we're like, we turn to each other, we're like, are we doing this right? And, you know, I'm kind of like, I don't know, we're doing it how we're doing it. So that's what we're doing. Um, but actually, there's a lot of excitement that we're here, that the thing that we have been building and working on for all this time is here, that I'm like so proud of the team we've built. I'm so proud of the way we've been campaigning. I'm so proud of like the reputation that we have and the things that people are saying as they get engaged in, in our campaign. And now, you know, we're working, you know, to our goal is to succeed in this election, to make it as one of the four uh, Democratic nominees for the at-large seat and move on to the general election. And then also to reflect that even if that doesn't take place, although I do actually think we have a really good chance of making it, which is so cool. Like that's a cool place to be at this stage. But even if that does not take place to recognize that we have built like that thing that I was talking about, the relationships, the community, the opportunity for a sustained movement, We've built that. And so even if the next step isn't me taking office, there are definitely next steps around continuing to build our community power and to figure out how we use the power that we've built. And that is tremendously exciting. Oh, my gosh. I want to check in with you. This episode is going to air on July 4th, actually. This episode is going to air on, on July 4th. And I'd like to check in with you before it airs if that's okay with you, just to give our listeners a little recap of where you are. Okay. Yeah. I think that would be great. We should set a date for that. I'm not sure um, what the good date will be. I'll Um, let you get, you or your office get in touch with me about that. But even if it's just like a five minute little check-in, I'd Mm -hmm. love to add that to this interview. Yeah. And I would say, drop me an email on June 27th. I will. And actually give me a call and probably send me a text too. I'm going to say, because I, be, I like, hope I can drop you a line that just says, congratulations. Yes. <laughs> I hope so. I will be definitely going to take a break for yes. a few days. As but you yeah. should. Yes. As you um, should. But yeah, but, but we can definitely find a, a time to check in between then and when yeah. it airs. And when it airs. I'm only looking for, even if you don't come on the air, just a little check in about how you're doing and what's going on. Brandy, this conversation has changed me already, and I'm excited to to just soak it in more and listen to it again and let it change me more. So I want to thank you. Thank you. It's actually, it's really lovely. And I just want to say, like, I love the title of the podcast, like the practice of being seen. There are so many layers to that, and it's so resonant with what... I'm doing the campaign with what I try and do as an organizer. I would appreciate giving me a little space to be seen more fully than sometimes I get to, than a lot of times I get to do on the campaign trail and to talk in depth about like some of the stuff that's closest to my heart in terms of the way that I think about the work that I do and who I want to be in the world. Thank you for that opportunity. It's really amazing. Thank you. I love that you enjoyed that piece of showing up here today. Yeah, I really did. Thanks for coming on. All right. Take care, Rebecca. Have a wonderful rest of the week. You too. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. As this episode airs, 
Brandy's election occurred a week or two ago. And as a first-time candidate, she went from virtually unknown to finishing sixth out of 33 candidates. She's building a movement, and her work continues. She says, I'm an organizer, and I have been since the beginning. I now have 24,000 more people that I can train and organize within Montgomery County, and she is so ready and so excited to do that work. So if you're in Montgomery County, if you're in that area, keep your eyes out for Brandy Brooks. I know that this conversation was the beginning for me of a relationship that has changed me already as a human and I can I'm so excited (laughs) to get to know Brandy on deeper levels so folks keep your eyes open and and look out on the horizon for organizers like Brandy Brooks and Brandy Brooks herself because this is the energy that that I believe we need more of and speaking of this journey that we're all on. I'm, I'm still running our discussion groups that meet on the last Thursday of the month. If you would like to join us in terms of remembering why you're here and what you're made of, we'd love to have you. Go to practiceofbeingseen.com slash wildwoman to learn more. If you're an instigator of change who wants to dive a little bit deeper into connecting all of your parts, there's a link to click in the show notes to learn more about working with me. And if you want to learn more about my relationship therapy practice or my private intensive couples retreats in New York, go to connectfulness.com. I would love to have you join our community on Facebook or find us on social media at Pobscast. I also would love to have you send me an email at practiceofbeingseen at gmail.com or leave a review in Apple Podcasts to let us know what you think of this show. The Practice of Being Seen podcast is produced by me, Rebecca Wong, along with the amazing behind-the-scenes support of Christy Hausler. Music by Chris Ferris Jr. and Sr. Produced by Kidney Stone Studio. I hope that you enjoyed the show. And you'll join us next week for another episode of The Popscast, brought to you by Connectfulness. <laughs>